everybody. Welcome to Exhaust, your weekly podcast about why nothing feels possible. Today, we have another American Canon episode at long last in store for you. This one is in honor of the passing of one of my favorite writers, Joan Didion. And I'm here with my favorite political operator, Luke Thompson. Welcome back, Luke. Thanks for having me back. I'm glad I, I didn't offend people so much last time that I was I was cast into outer darkness. No, not at all. We got a lot of positive feedback on that episode, actually. Today, we are going to talk about Didion's essay, allegedly, on the 1988 <laughs> primary season of the presidential campaign of that year. It is called Insider Baseball. It is, I think, probably one of her funniest essays in terms of her ability to juxtapose different things. I often think of a line we'll talk about later involving two-toned impalas that makes me laugh every time I read it. So before we get into this, Luke, you know the most about American history and American political history of anybody I know. And I was wondering if you could help us contextualize 88. Yeah, uh, sure. Well, I mean, so for a living, I actually do campaigns for a living. And, and they've changed a lot since what was in this essay. And we'll, I'm sure we'll talk at length about yeah. that. But um, so 1988 uh, was, was an important year in, I mean, all American presidential elections are important. But yeah. I think, you know, 88 was the moment where it started to appear that the Reagan revolution was going to, such as it was, was going to be ratified in American life. You know, Democrats continued to hold the House, but the House majority, the Democratic House majority in, in Congress was so deeply divided that that was, I don't want to say it was a Democratic majority in name only, but it was, it, it was something the Republican president could and had for eight years worked with. For most of 1988, it looked like George H.W. Bush was not going to win. I think a lot of that was wishful thinking on the part of press coverage and academics. But the, the consensus was, and, and Didion touches on this a bit, that um, after securing the nomination that Dukakis had a prohibitive uh, lead over Bush. And in the end, of course, and, and this essay is written one week before the election, roughly maybe 10 days, you know, George H.W. Bush winds up beating Michael Dukakis by more than Barack Obama would be John McCain in 2000. Not a lot more, but, you know, about half a point more. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if, if I think... What Obama beats McCain by a hair over seven points, and Bush beats Dukakis by a hair under eight. So it's yeah, it, it is seen at the time as a repudiation of the Great Society. Finally, in some ways, a repudiation of the New Deal. It suggests that the Republican Party can hold together, and that the kind of the the Reagan coalition is durable. All of this, of course, proves to be ephemeral. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the most important couple of factors to keep in mind, you know, we will have in 1992, of course, there's the famous boomer revolution. You have Bill Clinton elected. He's the first of the boomer presidents. And there's a sense that the boomers have taken over. That's not actually really the case. Interestingly, you know, he'll beat a member of what's generally called the greatest generation in HW. He'll beat another one in Bob Dole. But then, you know, we have this odd moment where, you know, in 2000, Barack Obama, a very, or, uh, sorry, in, in 2000, 2004, George W. Bush, who is also a baby boomer, but of a very different sort, will win. 2008, Barack Obama, who's a very young baby boomer on the mm -hmm. tail end of that, will also win. And, you know, Trump is, is like, like Clinton, a very old boomer. Biden is actually too old to be a baby boomer. He's a silent generation. 
tight. Which is crazy to think about. <laughs> which is wild when you think about it. Yeah. But so the the like the boomer revolution that gets ushered in is actually just a very narrow band of, of people from the beginning of that age bracket slash end of the silent generation with Obama as a bit of an outlier. And but in 88, we, you're not you're not looking at generational transition. The question is, are we going to have a ratification of the Reaganite repudiation of the high watermark of American liberalism in the middle of the 1960s? And like all things that are, you know, ultimately you have the the baby boom generation is voting on mass here, even though they're not the candidates. And so of course, everything is, is really a fight about the sixties <laughs> and seventies. Mm-hmm even still. But, you know, at the time, the conventional wisdom seems to be that Bush is stiff. He's a sort of Brahmin. He's not going to win. You have in Dukakis the synthesis of working class ethnic politics and Frost Belt liberalism. You know, we're getting the band back together. It feels so dated when I read it, even for the time. Extremely dated. When I'm reading it. Because it's like, you know, the hilarious thing where she talks about how basically a lot of campaigning is creating access journalism events yes and pass for the narrative of politics where journalists reward themselves by covering fake events and the idea is that anybody who might understand their fake events is just somebody who is a rube that is correct aware that they're being conned but uh, there's a weird interesting contradiction that it's true that she points out but somebody's like yeah like we have footage of him dancing it's nice you know doing the greek yeah. dances he's as one journalist calls him flagrantly multilingual yeah you know? flagrantly multilingual and yeah. i'm just like jesus uh, how old is this right well so i i think so what's important i guess to say at the outset is that this is not actually an essay about american politics or no. american presidential selection it's an essay about and it's a it's a brutal essay about television and and sort of and and the deeper you get into the details the more it's about television right i mean there's a reason the last section starts with the discussion of you know kennedy and lee harvey oswald because you know it's not you can read that as like oh that's about cuba and whatnot but no i mean like the searing the searing television moment of the 1960s that ushers in the high watermark of liberalism, which Dukakis is supposed to be recapitulating, starts in Dealey Plaza and everybody sees it on TV. Yes, right? that's correct. We watch, we watch the president of the United States have his head blown to pieces on television over and over and over and over, right? And so the, the, as with a lot of Didion's essays, the, the text is in some ways intentionally obscuring the subtext, even though the subtext is ubiquitous. And and what she is essentially in, doing in this is inveighing against television and, and making the argument that television creates even very important things, even fundamental and profound things, creates an artificiality to them that the participants in it buy into and, and in participating in sort of internalize the fundamental falsity of it, right? So, and if you go back to 88, right, like what's quite striking about it, and again, she touches on this, but doesn't dig into it very much is Dukakis is from a blue collar Greek family, right? That's true. He, he is not a Brahmin. George HW Bush is the descendant of wasp, Connecticut wasp aristocracy. He is not, even though he made a lot of money doing it, a West Texas wildcatter through and through, right? The whole, the, the bit of Peggy Noonan's sort of you know, invocation of the shotgun shack and, and whatnot, right? Yeah. There's there are ways in which Dukakis is attacked for being like what Bush is 
And Bush is successful by presenting himself as what Dukakis is by demographic. On the flip side, by temperament, it is true in many respects that Dukakis, like many working class ethnic white immigrants of his generation, aspires to emulate the stylings of that's the, the template elite. of success. If you're, I mean, going that's to get what John F. That. Kennedy did, right? Yeah. I mean, John F. Kennedy is the second, what, the second son of an Irish bootlegger, right? And he presents himself as, you know, more more waspy than 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 any Episcopalian you can find in Martha's Vineyard, right? <laughs> like, there's no, so so the, the, the you know the 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 incongruity there, right? The disjuncture there is is in many ways a theme that people looking back on the campaign tease out because they point to moments like they point to Dukakis's you know misadventure in the tank. They point to the highly effective the Willie Horton ad and the even more effective rotate revolving door that my friend and sometimes a colleague Larry McCarthy made and, you know, is, is often, I think, miscast as like an effort, an exercise in racial fear mongering, but, you know, on its merits is a fairly substantive critique of Dukakis's record as governor of Massachusetts, you know, and so... Anyway, so to bring it back to Didion's essay, we see a series of vignettes in which the event itself is either staged or the substance of it is secondary or tertiary to the ability to get coverage in two giant institutions Mm -hmm. that are in their own ways filtering and selecting the president for the American people. First of these is the national newspapers, right, which are at this point, they're approaching probably the peak of their circulation at this point. I think there's a um, paper that comes out in it's a New York Times issue that comes out in like the early mid nineties that weighs like twelve pounds. Right. And right. that's something Lash talks about is like physically actually the peak of the amount of print circulation that you could put right. out and people would digest. And people would digest. Yeah. And and so I mean, so cable news reaches, I think it hits it it, it hits peak penetration in the high nineties, uh ninety percent of homes. In either 1993 or 1998, I don't remember off the top of my head, mm-hmm. but it's within the range of this, right? So we're we're leading into, or I shouldn't say cable news, cable television. We're leading into peak TV. Mm-hmm. We, we've passed peak newspaper, but nobody knows it yet, right? They're they're sort of at their high point plateau, and like they can't really grow that much more because in order to grow, you would need households to be consuming multiple newspapers. Yes, and so you have a look, and there's another factor of this too that I'll get to in just a second. But you're looking at a campaign playing out at the moment of maximum media mediation, right, of politics. It's also, she's focusing on a general election and California specifically, California mm-hmm. primary, and California then a swing state still is highly mediated. I mean, this is how somebody like Kamala Harris with like manifestly inadequate political skills yes. can rise is because California politics, California is so large, you cannot retail your way through it. You cannot mm-hmm. raise enough money, frankly, without the support of massive institutions like unions to succeed in it. And so what you have to do, and I've written this in essays on California and politics generally, is you have to go get attention from local media, specifically television, especially now, but even then, because you can't pay for it. It's mm-hmm. too big to pay for, which means 
you know, what, what people do now between the jungle primaries and the collapse of newspapers is they just go stage increasingly elaborate and ludicrous stunts to get on, to get covered by local TV. And you add in the term limits, which are added, you know, later, I think during Schwarzenegger and Mm -hmm. people are just constantly staging stunts in California politics to get on TV because otherwise, I mean, it's prohibitively expensive for anybody below a U.S. Senate or gubernatorial campaign to advertise on Los on L.A. TV, let alone L.A. and San Francisco. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you and I've I live in Los Angeles. You've lived there. The media market is huge. I mean, it is the Death Star visual media. Right. I mean, it's it's not like the largest. What's different about it, right, is so the New York media market is enormous. It is the largest and most expensive media market in in the US. It also shows up in Pennsylvania, half mm-hmm. of New Jersey, you right. know, it's all of Conne- you know, half of Connecticut. And so you sort of know out of the gate that you're dealing with politically inefficient advertising there. Mm-hmm. Right. And again, PA is the only swing state now that's covered in that market. The LA media market, unless a little bit of it way out east hits Arizona, and I don't think it does. That is entirely within California, which means if you're running statewide in California, every single eyeball that that advertisement shows itself to is vote is a potential voter, assuming it's a citizen who's registered to vote, right? And so, yeah, it is the Death Star, right? You know, advertising on TV in New Jersey is intrinsically an inefficient exercise because you're pretty much split 50-50 between New York and Philly. The right. first and I think seventh most expensive TV market in the U.S. California, it's like you got to buy L.A., you got to buy San Fran, and yeah. both of those are entirely within California, and both of those are prohibitively expensive. I mean, they 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 eat money like people eat popcorn. Right, right, right. And we see this. I think the first moment we get we get a look at a few of these stunts, largely from the Dukakis campaign over the course of this, which is an interesting facet of it. But what she says at the beginning of the second part is what strikes one most vividly about such a campaign is precisely its remoteness from the real life of the country. The figures are well known and suggest a national indifference usually construed by those inside the process as ignorance or apathy. In any case, a defect not in themselves, but in the clay they have been given to mold. That clay, I assume, would be the attention or the American people. But she points out that when Dukakis shows up in San Jose and has a moment with the mayor, I'll just read this, where she says, despite what the paper said, calling it like this major campaign event or whatever, she says, the crowd was listless, restless. There were gray thunderclouds overhead. A little rain fell. We welcome you to Silicon Valley, an official had said, by way of greeting the candidate. But this was not, in fact, Silicon Valley. This was San Jose and a part of San Jose particularly untouched by technological prosperity, a neighborhood in which the lowering of two-toned impalas remained a central activity. Yeah. Now, of course, every single one of the tract homes in that part of San Jose is now worth like $5 million. But, <laughs> yeah, so yeah. some things have changed. But So, so if, the chil- if the children of the two-tone impala lowers held on until the, you know, the, the early aughts, they, they cashed out and moved to Florida with, with real bank, especially because they weren't paying taxes after Prop 13. But, <laughs> but no, it's, um, so it's, it's fascinating, right? Like it's, it's even interesting to see Silicon Valley mentioned there and it's just, it's totally, it's the Silicon Valley of the late Cold War Star Wars defense boom. 
Right. right. It hasn't quite moved completely over to civilianization, a process well, it that hasn't, yeah, begins not even in close. the No, if that begins in the yeah. 70s, then it takes the 90s for that right. to finally conclude with the dot-com bubble. Yeah, they're, I mean, they're still, they're still making, they're still making microchips there at this point, right? Yeah. Like there's, there's major technological manufacturing going on. Yeah. People yeah, still give really a shit about Moore's law over there. Right. Yeah. People point. are still thinking about that. Exactly. And they're just like, we don't know how it works, but the, the capacity keeps going up. But yeah, they, uh, they also, you know, what's worth noting here is you have not, it's, it's the, from a, from a structure of the economy standpoint, you're right that the civilianization starts and accelerates from the 70s. But really what it is, is it's the peace dividend in the night that the defense contractors, I mean, the the absolute, you know, controlled for inflation or whatever, you know, the defense budget has gone down actually quite dramatically compared to the height of the, the late Cold War. Mm-hmm. And, you know, all of these jobs have bled out of California and, and the California Republican Party has died as a result of that and Prop 13, because the threat of property taxes having been removed, essentially you have regressive consumer taxes as the and, and income tax as the only vehicles through which the state of California can adequately fund itself. And it can't really adequately fund itself, but you know, that that takes the threat of people taxing you on your home's skyrocketing value off the table. And so people vote for you know, the sort of California cultural issues. I mean, this is, it's also worth noting that like Didion is a native Californian of the old model, right? She's, a, she's from a, she's from an old California family from, I think the central Valley, I think Sacramento. Yeah. Sacton, I think. Yeah. 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 I think she's a Sacton person, mm-hmm. but, but yeah, it's, um, I mean, I don't know. It's interesting. What do you would would you like to do? You want to talk about like how campaigns sort of have changed from this TV era, or, or yeah? What the, I mean, like, first, I want to talk about some things. I want to talk about things in this essay, which, by the way, everybody will be in the show notes. You can do a free login to the NYRB and read it, and you should at least for the quality of the prose, which is fantastic. Yeah, it's great fun. It's also, I mean, it's not a long read. I mean, it's, I think it comes out, you download it as a PDF and it's like 20 pages, but the the margins are big and the space is big. You can read this thing in half an hour. So one of the things that seemed to remain true to me is I think about the set pieces, right? I think about her what is good about her political media criticism is that she used to punch up scripts in Hollywood. Yeah. Right. Like she pumped up, she punched up with her husband, the second version of a star is born, I believe, Mm -hmm. which is the version that the latest one is based off of. She's in the credits right after the movie. So she had a lot of time in Hollywood and she talks about who the directors, producers, the grip men metaphorically are in this, which lead to, the sort of transmutation, let's say, of Dukakis and Bush and the eye of the media and how they're playing roles, Dukakis aspiring to wasp, prowess, mm-hmm. Bush trying to underplay his, and that it is about basically successfully casting them in these moments. And a lot of it has to do with quote unquote toughness. This is something we see all the time in campaigns that feels real. There's Dukakis throwing the baseball with this campaign it back and forth on a hot tarmac in Tempe, Arizona. <laughs> over and over and over again. And in Ohio to get it written up. Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That has like five different interpretations. And I couldn't help but think about things that I remember. One of the things when I was washing dishes that enraged me was Paul Ryan's fake washing dishes at a charity thing that happened. Because hadn't he been like a a dishy at at Tortilla Coast, I think recently deceased uh, uh, restaurant on Capitol Hill, right next to the Republican National Committee. Right. And he would also talk about how he he worked minimum wage at McDonald's, I believe, for a little while. And that it's possible to, if you don't care about inflation as a metric, it's possible to still do that. And there was also the Mitt Romney's dog on the top of his car. Yeah thing and the Seamus, poor Seamus, poor Seamus, right? And the thing that I keep thinking about when I watch this is the sort of permanent, like wag the dog element of political (laughs) coverage and the coverage of campaigning. And what seemed to be a machine that was well established if changing up until in my mind, and this is where you can correct me if I'm wrong, 2016, really messed up a lot of assumptions that a bunch of people who are still working on this from 1988 on have. Oh, you're not, yeah, you're going to, you'll find my, I think you'll find my, my answer on this one curious. So actually I would contend, I would submit that 2016 is the last television election. 2016 is a throw, but it's a throwback. So it, I think it's important to note a couple of things out of the gate. The first is that I mentioned that this is, this is not a, a portrait of selecting the president because it covers the general election that covers California during the primary. Mm-hmm. You know, California as a primary is a big state. You have to go do earned media in the media markets. Otherwise it will, it will bankrupt you. And, you know, she makes sort of a, a nod that with Jesse Jackson getting, you know, having no food on the plane, but, but having lots of access, <laughs> yeah. right. And because having the best parties to too. Get, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Trying to get access, trying to get coverage. And, you know, there's a suggestion there that maybe in an even pay playing field, the the kids in the back that heckled Dukakis about Jackson might have been, you know, there might have been more of them, right? But uh, I and I think that's all fine. But um, the point would be, you know, the the actual once you get to a general election, incumbency or incumbent party status and economic performance and how we're doing in a war is going to decide more of who wins than the candidates, right? And and there's sort of a myth that candidates are decisive. Now, in really close elections, like we've had a few of, they are decisive. But had Hillary Clinton won the 2008 Democratic primary, she also would have beaten John McCain, just as you know Barack Obama and, and Hillary Clinton would have beaten uh, Mitt Romney or Rick Santorum had either of them or, or you know, mm-hmm. whoever had one of them won the 2008 Republican primary. The actual exercise of democracy in, in presidential, presidential selection takes place in the primaries and specifically in the early primaries, because unlike normal campaigns, presidential campaigns accelerate um, rapidly over time and you can't build an organization in the the primary states as you move along right unless you're an incumbent president or I guess Bush probably would have had a lot of this as a, as a vice president but you had but you know he was he was challenged seriously by double and others so so you have you have what is effectively hardcore retail politics that is unmediated that is not this hyper televisual exercise taking place mm-hmm. in Iowa especially also New Hampshire increasingly also Nevada and to some extent South Carolina but it's really Iowa and New Hampshire are the biggies and you got to show up you press the flesh i mean i like to joke that it's 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 shaking babies and kissing hands and <laughs> you know it and it's you do the candidates are just brutally ruthlessly hazed 
in that exercise over and over and over again. And then the historically, the TV networks would look to see who emerged from that, take them and run with it, right? And that kind of happened in 2020 with the Democratic primary, right? Mm -hmm. Iowa was because of some technological glitches and, and whatever, and because frankly, Pete had already kind of maximized his television exposure. Iowa didn't really launch Pete. Bernie had not done a good job managing expectations in New Hampshire. So nobody was shocked by his win there. He kind of underperformed, actually. You go to Nevada, he has a surprising victory in Nevada and TV starts to accelerate. And then Biden, of course, cleans up in South Carolina. And that's the decisive moment where combined with the 15% threshold for delegates moving forward, all the other candidates get out, they consolidate behind Biden, and he's the choice because he's the choice of black voters, right? But TV takes the signal from South Carolina and runs with it, right? 2016, it doesn't work that way. What instead happens is the television cameras have decided that they are going to cover, so the, the liberal networks are going to cover Donald Trump ad infinitum, right? There's the, famous, up- there's the famous thing about how while Bernie was giving a speech, they covered an empty podium Waiting oh, for they Donald covered Trump. Em- yeah, they covered empty. <laughs> like that was the extent the of their yeah. their saturation. Of yeah, so, so Trump, Trump gets about two billion dollars worth of free media attention in the primary, right? I mean, that's that that just it's it's a it's a staggering amount of media attention, and and they lead him by about three weeks. So his coverage spikes about three weeks before he moves in the poll. They blanket it wall to wall, and then something crazy happens, which is in Iowa, Ted Cruz wins anyway. And there's like this very brief 12-day period or whatever where the press is like, oh, shit, maybe we got this wrong. And they pivot over to Rubio dramatically because Rubio comes in third and declares victory you know, with a stirring thirst place. And, and the, the press is like, oh, we pivot to Rubio. We thought, you know, we thought Trump was going to win. They nationalized the Republican primary out of the gate. Trump does a really good job, very strategically and, and, and intentionally making it nationalized, including announcing the day after Jeb Bush and just punching Jeb Bush over and over and over again as the change candidate, right, within the Republican par- Party. But then Cruz wins the Iowa caucuses and they go, oh, 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 no. Well, who's it going to be? It can't be Cruz because we hate him. And clearly Trump didn't win. So let's focus on Rubio. And they fixate on Rubio until, you know, he is suicide bombed by Chris Christie a couple of days before the election yep. and comes in fifth. Trump crushes in New Hampshire. And then the media signal coming out of New Hampshire, which is a dominant Trump victory, carries him all the way into South Carolina and beyond. Mm-hmm. Um, now, of course, he doesn't lock up the nomination until much later, until I think it's the, is it the, because he doesn't win. Ted Cruz wins Wisconsin. And so I think it's the Indiana primary. It's that late that Trump actually wraps it up. But you see this sort of wobble on the part of television because they've got mixed signals, signals they weren't expecting, signals they didn't know how to like internalize. And so they are, they're sort of very much, they're hyper-covering Trump. They wobble. They go back to hyper-covering Trump. They never actually covered Cruz <laughs> in the way that they really should have been given what he was pulling electorally. And then they do cover Rubio quite a bit even after New Hampshire, but when he can't even fill up the end zone of a football state uh, of a football field the night before the Florida primary in mm-hmm. his home county, yet kind of that that ends in in disrepute, if you will. But yeah, then going into the general election, you know, Trump very intentionally, and I think sometimes unintentionally, but successfully 
just dominates the discussion in a sort of frenetic way and is constantly dominating TV and is in is and is just being talked about in TV over and over and over and over again. And it works. Um, the Clinton campaign wasn't really running on anything. They didn't have a message. They had a deeply flawed candidate and, and it was all, I mean, you want to talk about, you know, this essay sort of makes fun of people talking about the process. Like that campaign was all process. That was it yeah. because God knows they didn't have policy and they didn't have personality. They'll point to their booklet and look at all of our policies, but like they weren't translating that to the public and Jesus think about their candidate. I, I, I guess in some ways, 2016 is a throwback to this late eighties model of campaigning where the TV cameras dominate everything, but you needed someone coming out of television to who also had deep understanding of the ways in which all reporters are fundamentally tabloid reporters and yes. knew how to manipulate their vanity and their ego right. in order to dominate the conversation. I, you know, even 2020, I mean, a lot changes in 2020, obviously, but you don't have, you know, you have television following events, not creating events. In 2016, they're creating events. Yes, I think that's correct. I think, so that's the context in which I first read this essay. Mm. And I was like, my God. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. Because there is also what I think is the element that Didion really picks up on, which is the way that the media will, you talk about the hazing ritual of Iowa. And the decisions the media makes after that. I mean, first of all, these are all access journalists, largely within the same class, especially then, right? We don't have the sort of mass onboarding of social media. In yeah, the although way. I would say I think it's I think it's gotten even worse now. Political journalism now is way more homogenous, I think. Than okay, so yeah, so and anyway, even worse. Yeah. But I think I kept thinking about the personal odyssey element of it. That that is the way that we are, the way the hazing ritual is explained to American audiences is the personal odyssey of the campaign itself and what you realize over the course of the campaign. Now, campaigning is so brutal and so hard that I don't doubt that that is, of course, true at some personal phenomenal level. Absolutely. The other question- it's to ask, Yeah, the <laughs> it's, other question- it's so brutal. Yeah, the other question to ask is to what extent that personal Odyssey can be used as a stocking horse for the status quo in what mm. becomes the horse race narratives. And I think that is something that Didine has a keen eye on throughout because in the forward to the essay collection, this is from Political Fictions, she discusses her switch from Republican to Democrat over the course of working on this political material when she's first commissioned to do it from the 80s into the late 90s. And then she points out, surprisingly, it changed nothing about her life and that the stakes of that type of switch were more or less meaningless. And that left her with all sorts of questions about the nature of American politics. Yeah, I'm not sure she's telling the truth there for what it's worth. No, uh, there are a lot of things that we could say about once you become I, a media actor and yeah. once you're participating in that, it becomes hard to tell when you're being contoured. And when you're making well, choices yeah, for yourself, I, I would go beyond that. There, there is no literary figure in the, at least in the back half of the 20th century, other than maybe Truman Capote, mm -hmm. who was more self-conscious and intentional in the construction of her own myth, right? Which makes the hero's journey quality of presidential campaigning and the narrative, the personal narrative building as a ratification of status quo that Didion is observing, especially ironic, given that she mastered that art 
mm-hmm. in the exercise of building literary celebrity and executed it with ruthless eff- effectiveness, right? I mean, and by the time George W. Bush is elected president, I don't think you can remain a member of the New York literary scene in good standing and still be either a Republican or skeptical of American liberalism, right? You have to have essentially joined the Borg because, and, and great irony that it is that for someone who specialized in pointing out the uncreative, pinched, reflexive, and self-deluding nature, the America, this sort of broad American cultural production class, like she winds up essentially getting sucked into it and absorbed because in order to remain in it, you kind of had to. Sure. You're going to be by. I don't doubt. doubt, Right. Yeah. I don't doubt for instance, that her disaffection with the Republican party is genuine and earnest, but Didion is, is Didion writes like Machiavelli. She's always lying to you. She Mm -hmm. is always hiding the ball from you. Well, I mean, she's very clear one, about that in her first ever collection where she says a writer is always selling someone out, which sometimes you have to consider might out. be you as the reader. It is you. It is you, right? I mean, remember, like, like, like Machiavelli opens The Prince with, this book contains all I know. He opens the discourses on Livy with, this book contains all I know. Mm-hmm. Okay, these are two different books that are, in principle, identical because both of them contain everything that he knows, mm-hmm. right? Didion starts out in vogue she reads the entire back catalog right she works in hollywood she understands the intersection of word language spoken heard and the visual medium and the way to construct herself now lots of parts of her personality are very real and i i regard myself as a fan of her writing i don't say this as as as, as a i'm not trying to slam her here i'm not sure it's just remember she is always putting you on and I think, interestingly, this hasn't emerged in the sort of critical takes of Didion since her death. And there have been some, some critical takes on her. I mean, people, like the best critique of Didion is that ultimately she's Lucy with the football and the reader is Charlie Brown. Mm-hmm. She's always, she's telling you a story, a narrative of decline. And at the last minute, she always takes the ball away. She mm-hmm. always pulls it away. And she does it here too, right? A, a direct essay about you know, there is, there are great Easter eggs hidden here, right? Mm-hmm. She fundamentally says that Michael Dukakis is a vain man. Like his character is not weakness and the attempt to cover for his toughness miss the, misses the ball. He is a vain man, right? Yes. Bush is fundamentally unreachable. He is evasive. He is hiding. Does it make him a coward? It might, right? It's very difficult to call a you know a person who's who, who crashes in the middle of the ocean, in the middle of the world war, a coward. But like she sort of says, he is afraid. He lives in fear, mm-hmm. right? He's here. He's he's seeing ghosts. But she does it. She's very subtle about it, and it, it's sitting you know two or three levels below below the level of text. But she herself is the writer who is participating in all of these things. Who is herself creating events on the page as events right? Mm-hmm. Is, I mean, I, not to be totally Straussian about this, right? But she, she is always, you always have to assume she's putting one over. Well, I'd um, say the same thing about yeah. another famous campaign essay, which is another, I would say, put him in league with Capote and Didion is David Foster Wallace's Up Simba yes. on the McCain campaign. Yeah. Which is of, typical for him, almost uh, like uncomfortably, maybe even brutally self-conscious 
about both what he's doing to the point where the essay is titled after something that the camera guys he hangs out with say to each other before the camera they guys lift. that he says he hangs out with sure. say yeah. to each other. Yeah, say to each other when they lift up their things to record what they see. Yeah, so my, my old boss, Mike Murphy, who I adore and who was a master of this kind of politics because he understood the ways in which mediated communication you, the way you had to operate in a world of heavily mediated, you know, monological, so to speak, because there's only mm -hmm. going to be one message, communication. You know, he he befriended David Foster Wallace on the McCain campaign. They used to get together, you know, every six months or so before, at least that's what he told me before suicide. And yeah, I mean, DFW was just riding around in the press bus with the other reporters the whole time. Yeah. He had he had he had dressed the way he he seemed to have dressed the way he thought a political correspondent was supposed to dress, That's according awesome. to Murphy. So he showed up with like dockers and a blazer, a bad blue blazer. Amazing. Similarly, she uses she she narrates the visual medium in mm -hmm. a way that I don't think anybody else has been as nearly as effective at. But. No, exactly. Well, I mean, so this is the difference I think between their generations as well. Sure. Is and her well and she's a woman writing as a woman and he's a very very large dude yes who probably well, he you know, was raised yeah. by television in a way that she wasn't right which he's very right. self-conscious about when yes. he in other essays of his so what endures for me about what didion's looking at here for one it's a great snapshot of a machine that has changed a lot mm -hmm. Another thing that it has made me think of is how there are critiques that emerge. So the first essay, I've talked about this on the Patreon episodes, the first scholarship ever done on the concept of a parasocial relationship happens in, I think, the early 30s or late 20s about a television donation drive. Hmm. And the relationship, the speakers in that drive develop with their unseen audience to get them to give money. Mm. Now, uh, that word has become far more diffuse. We think about it all the time. But what endures for me is that there is the lingering problem of the relationship between mass media and democracy. And mm. things have changed in a big way, especially with television, if we look at the numbers now on how that works. Oh. Yeah, I love they're like only 20% of households tuned in. Are you fucking kidding me? I'd kill for 20% of households. Right, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. I, I, well, but also how revealing- The most, the most popular cable television news show in America in a decade gets less than 4 million viewers a night. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I think, I think Roots got 80. Right. And it was programmed Huge. opposite the television premiere of Jaws. Right. Or think about Ken Burns' Civil War documentary- series yeah. in the 90s like what a huge imprint that left on an entire generation of americans myself included my family yeah. watched it as it was slowly released um, you hit that ashokan farewell note and it's just everybody knows exactly what's going on <laughs> yeah, yeah pan, exactly. pan and scan over some bearded dudes with a thousand yard scare, stare yeah exactly so is that we there was the hope in around the turn of this century that the digital revolution was going to resolve some of these problems and instead, it has reified some of what Didion has talked about in its own ways, and in a way that I think she would not be able to survive in this climate, or that she doesn't really make sense in this climate, is the way the journalist 
especially the political journalist, has become this moral Odyssean figure themselves by being the one who relates this world towards you. And I think that to me was a moment where that became completely explicit after 2016. Yeah. Well, yeah. Cause they, I mean, good God, like they call, they call themselves firefighters. I mean, you essentially have these like underwhelming middle children who, well, everybody graduates with A's from Amherst, but you know what I mean? Like they're just, they're, they're all. The <laughs> Can't spell Amherst without A buddy. Yeah. It's, I, I, I don't know. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to behave myself. I won't, I won't be too crude here. It used to be that if you wanted to work in television or in newspapers, you had to get an entry level job at a regional outfit. Mm -hmm. If you were lucky, you got your first job at like the Detroit Free Press or something like that. Right? Typically, you're going to go start at the Wichita Eagle, and mm -hmm. you're going to move up to the Kansas City Star, and then you're going to move up to the Chicago Tribune, and then you're going to move to the Washington Post or to the New York Times, or you're going to stay at Chicago or the LA paper, or the Miami paper or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. Because all of these have bureau DC bureaus, etc because they have a big enough circulation, they've got enough slack in the line that they can all sustain these brigades of reporters. But there's a winnowing effect in each of those things. And people can set up their own little sort of fiefdoms and they stay like, hey, I'm just going to, I like my house in Topeka. I'm going to stay with the Capitol Journal forever, right? I guess I'll be with the Charleston Gazette until mm -hmm. the day. I, you, you get the idea. Yeah. There are, there, yeah. Um, it's a career. It's a career, but it's also very hierarchical. So it's a career in the sense that it has a trajectory and a path, and also that it is moving with status prestige. And that means that you don't have young people working at the big jobs, right? Mm -hmm. As she says in here, it is often a pathway to Washington, right? That is to say, if you do a good job covering a presidential campaign, you can move from somewhere to Washington. What mm -hmm. happens now is a whole bunch of kids who don't have to pay their own rent because their parents pay it, go work for digital media startups covering White House. I mean, look, I'm not making this up. Ben Rhodes said this at the end of the White at the Obama administration. And they don't know the first damn thing about politics. They don't know the way the government works. They couldn't name the difference between a middle cabinet and an inner cabinet agency if you put a gun to their heads. You ask them what a rating point is, and then they don't know because they don't even know the business side of their own business. Probably the closest they came was if one of them, well, no, they're too young now to have ever been paper boys either, right? Mm -hmm. So not to like go all, oh, it's the damn Zoomers, it's all their fault, because it's not. It's that you now have, the business model has collapsed such that the only people who can afford to live in major metropolitan areas and work at the starvation wages that they get paid at these media outlets to cover politics, which they do because it's perceived as high status and prestige, because the only people who can afford to do it are who? Trust fund babies. That's it. They're the only people who can afford to do it. You either, you either live like, you either split a basement apartment until you're 30, right? Or you don't do this job or somebody pays your rent. Mm -hmm. And guess which one the prevailing ethos is? Somebody pays your rent. Because as it gets more and more homogenous, it also gets harder for the person who's willing to split a, a basement apartment for 10 years to break in because it gets more and more social, socially closed. Exactly. And sorry, my, no, my, no, that's no. my little rant. No, no, no. I think that's correct because the other thing that I wanted to point to, and this is a great bridge to building on the thing I introduced here, is the feature of celebrity. Yes. And how this goes. It works one way in Didion's time. There is a such thing as a literary celebrity that is distinct from other categories of celebrity. What we see now, I would argue, 
is a collapse of categories of celebrity into what we would now just call in the vaguest terms possible the influencer personal branding yes exactly yeah. yeah exactly yeah that's true sort of let me put it this way you can sort of, between social media and digital media and then also the way in which cable news is desperately trying to keep its business model afloat by tracking both of these things you can you can engage in an exercise of sort of like Pepsi one version of Didianism of constructing a personal narrative, your own mythology, doing it online, doing it on Instagram, and making that part of how you have a career in this business. And I mean, look, some people who do it are, are, are perfectly fine at, at writing profiles and things like that. Others, I think, are just you know, airheaded narcissists and not particularly good. But but yes, there is a lot of personal brand myth-making independent of the job itself that goes on. And so, yeah, you wind up with people who are in some ways intentionally ludicrous, increasingly comprising the commentariat, but the commentariat has no longer has a filtering function. So they're just a consumption good for essentially neurotic and mentally unstable media hyper-consumers. Mm -hmm. who drive a polarized narrative that itself doesn't actually sort or have that much influence. So, you know, I, I, I'm reminded of, of Oswald Spangler's The Decline of the West. At some point, he describes Western science as like a ball of twine that's winding itself up. Mm -hmm. And that the last little bit of twine touching earth, which is to say having some correspondence to reality, is going to roll up into the ball of twine. And then all they will be able to do is explain what they have done in terms relation relating to themselves right the mm -hmm. whole exercise will become tautological I mean, we're kind of there with political coverage right i mean if you watch a cable news panel these people look like i mean they're like pickup artists peacocking they have ridiculous hair they have absurd outfits they're they're like it trying to get attention to seduce these just low self-esteem deranged viewers which is pretty much who watches cable news now right um, well and i think the way that i reread this so Every time I've read this essay, I've read it a few times, I try to figure out a new thing to pay attention to because, because Didion is so successful at hiding the football, as you say, it behooves right. you. It generally behooves you to do that if you're going to reread. But with her, it really repays that type of attention. And for this one, I paid attention to the nature of citations Yeah. throughout, which is yeah. honestly impressive in the way that she constructs it. You can tell she's clipping things out of the newspaper, watching television, taking notes that she herself is a refined media consumer. And that the only way that this essay could ever work is if she has that capacity. Big card catalogs. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Didion, of course, had crippling social anxiety. Yes. And so I was talking to my wife who, who, is a, an admirer of her writing. And, and, you know, she described Didion to me as a documentary essayist, mm -hmm. meaning someone who exploited documents rather than mm -hmm. just doing interviews. Now, of course, she's very famous for her time in the hate and for, you know, seeing things and, and experiencing things and being there and watching. And this is, as More you said, this is an essay. <laughs> yeah, this gonzo, and this reads at surface like a gonzo essay. But as you point out, there's a great deal of, of footnoting going on here, right? There's a lot of document exploitation going on. And, and I think it does enrich it. 
uh, and it lets her do things. I mean, in effect, if you go back to the baseball story, right? The point of the baseball story is that the construction of these campaign persona is self-conscious and bullshit and also really tedious and substanceless. Mm-hmm. But it's also important because it's part of how you build a campaign persona, right? So yeah. it's, 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 it's without substance and also very important. Yes. On the flip side, it's also an opportunity for her to turn around and essentially spit on the shoes of everyone that's on the bus with her because she does this, like, I don't know what you'd call it, like a genealogy of the concept of Dukakis throwing the, foot, <laughs> yeah. the, the baseball, yeah. right? With a lot of other, by going through and showing in, in a, in How like it's a close reading sort this, of way. Yeah. Yeah. By this board. Right. So to speak. And of course, yeah. I, and I think that the, you know, her point in all of this is that the candidates themselves become secondary or tertiary figures. And, yes. and that's, that's true. What, I mean, if we want to get to the political upshot of all of this, in many ways, what she's pointing to is the same thing Walter Lippmann is pointing to in public opinion you know, 68 years earlier, where he's saying, you know, the, 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 how can we have democratic legitimacy when the people are making their decisions through mediated information? Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the correct response to that, I guess, is it was ever thus, right? This is why we have a First Amendment, so that we can have an agonistic, highly competitive, fractious, mediated experience (laughs) but but yeah plural mediated experience yeah and what Lippman is anticipating and what didian is seeing even as it goes into eclipse and she she isn't aware of this and why why would she be in 1988 right the cold war still exists in 1988 but you could say that there was a thing called the media and i don't think there is the media anymore it is dying and we're going back to something that looks a lot more like the 19th century Yes. And yeah, that's going to be a lot more partisan. It's going to be a lot more agonistic. That was but, one of our responses yeah. to some of the later chapters, or maybe the middle chapters of Christopher Lash's The Revolt of the Elites, which comes out eight mm-hmm. years after this, I think. And he's talking about, he's, he's almost himself nostalgic for the yellow journalism days of partisan stuff. I don't think that quite works the way he would like it to, living in this reality but now. I, I mean, they did... They did manage to start the Spanish, uh, the the Spanish American War, uh, based on yellow journalism too. Yeah. So we shouldn't we shouldn't be nostalgic for. No, it. that's what. Yeah, yellow, that's yeah. that's the critique, right? Like that might not yeah. be exactly what we think it is. You know, I'm thinking about an episode we did, I think a year or two ago now, I can't believe this podcast has lived that long. Where a friend of mine, Josh Bragman, and I watched Robert Downey Jr.'s long forgotten documentary about the 1992 presidential campaign. So people How can, was that? People can go back and watch that. And I, when you brought up that the Cold War still exists, that's one of the things that's palpable when Robert Downey Jr. is interviewing everybody from campaign apparatchiks to Dave Mustaine of the band Megadeth. Mm. Right. Uh, is that nobody really knows what to do now that the Cold War is over. And right. the thing that... Didion politically has her finger on the pulse of is the way this sort of already outdated consensus is remaining in deadlock, in part, she argues, around the stalking horse problem of this hypermediated experience. That the, the media technology and its consolidation is keeping alive a, a system 
that is itself sort of spent and exhausted. Right, exactly. And she points out the competing nostalgias of Dukakis and Bush. One, right, right of a post-war WASP governance and in Bush and the pre-war governance, I believe, of working class European immigrants mm-hmm. that we see That's from right. the New Deal era as embodied in Dukakis. And that, Both of which are trying to avoid the Great Society. Right, right. Which has created, in part, largely created the world they live in, along with this Cold War context that people can already kind of feel from the media clips that she has is coming to an end, even if they don't know when it's ending. By the time the candidate that's and the candidate that's living into the great, leaning into the Great Society, that's campaigning on the Great Society is Jesse Jackson. Yes, right. I mean, the Rainbow Push Coalition is like yes and to the to the Great Society, and you know. All the candidates are peripheral, but he's quite literally peripheral in that the, you know, the kids in the back at, at Dukakis's event yell Jackson from the peripheries. Um, <laughs> yeah. Dukakis is getting it, you know. The only candidate that would come here, who else are you going to vote for? And one of the kids before. is just like Jackson. <laughs> Jackson. Yeah, yeah, like four of them. I think she says like four. Would she say four Chicano kids or something yeah. like that? You know, again, yeah. And you know, I love, I love this. Going back towards the beginning, this kind of, this kind of gets to the fundamental emptiness of it and the evasiveness of it. Quote, the process today gives everyone a chance to participate. Tom Hayden, by way of explaining the difference, quote unquote, between 1968 and 1988, said to Bryant Gumbel on NBC at 7.50 a.m. on the day after Jesse Jackson spoke at the Democratic Convention in Atlanta. The statement was at a convention which had as its controlling principle the notably non-participatory idea of unity, demonstrably not true, but people inside the process constituting as they do a self-created and self-referring class of a new kind of managerial elite tend to speak of the world, not necessarily as it is, but as they want people out there to believe it is. Mm-hmm. Two sentences, a lot going on there. But, you know, first of all, Tom Hayden, a member of the, the Chicago 7, yep. right? The head of the what was he? He was a was he he was the president of SDS, right? Not yeah. just SNCC, but SDS, SDS Students for Democratic yeah. Society. Yeah, and just sells out gangbusters, right? Oh, huge! Um, Him and Mark Rudd, who was a fink anyway. Yeah, but but I mean, not just them. Like Barry Rubin winds up a like a, a junk bond trader. Oh, and gets yeah, hit by sure. a car. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you know, Abby Hoffman goes to my hometown and convinces somebody to firebomb the student union, but that's a different thing. But like, uh, and that's in 1970, so it's two years yeah. after 68. But no, I, I like. Hey, this is Tom Hayden on the Today Show at 7:50 a.m. Right, so sort of primo morning viewing, speaking to the, you know, Bryant Gumble, who is the the how to put this like very intentionally constructed black anchor on NBC who is not threatening to white sense, white suburban sensibilities Mm -hmm. talking about Jesse Jackson, right. And essentially elighting everything that Jackson ran on and saying unity participation Right. In and fact, things are more participatory than they were after we changed the entire primary thing to be less participatory right. because 68 scared the shit out of all shit out of everyone because yeah. there was literally a Democrat on Democrat police riot. Right? Yeah. White <laughs> ethnic Democrats beating the shit out of college educated white Democrats 
who are hippies, right? Yeah. And yeah. so the class war that breaks out inside the Democratic Party scares the bejesus out of everybody. And so they wind up introducing the McGovern reforms, which create the primary system in the first place, mm -hmm. which now we all blame for driving the country insane rather than acknowledging the reality, which is that we are insane. And our politics are insane because it actually is representative. It reflects us, even if it is not exactly participatory, it is still a hell of a lot more participatory than what, than, you know, Bryant Gumbel, the sanitized safe face of network television, talking to Prince of Privilege Tom Hayden about mm -hmm. the first serious black presidential candidate in American history, because I'm sorry, Shirley Chisholm, you don't count. It was Jesse Jackson. That's right. By the way, Adolph Reed Jr. has a great book that is a sustained investigation of and critique of the Jackson campaign and the even the concept of the Rainbow Coalition. If people want to check that out, yeah. they can go find it. He's been, he was, uh, yeah, he's been, I mean, I guess when you hit his age and tenure, you can be totally fearless. But yeah. the last five years, Adolf Reed has been very fearless. Yes, except for his unfortunate recent piece uh, about how like every day is the Reichstag fire or whatever. Oh God, did he write one of those? Yeah, with oh, that title. Yeah, incredibly oh. disappointing moment. Come on, man. I know, I know. What are you going to do? But- Farewell. The Borg gets everybody. The I know. Borg gets everybody. It's true. So it's not going to get me though. <laughs> You're not. I'll never get out of this life alive. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so, closing notes on this. One of the things that I would invite people to look at when they read this, because I would like them to read this for all sorts of reasons. And the style note is, of course, to always pay attention to Didion's sentences because that is she hides the football in between subordinating clauses often. That's right. See so, that second sentence that starts with this statement was yeah. and ends, you know, 40 words later to believe it is, right? Yes. Yeah. So pay attention to how that works. But also, I think it is worth considering the idea from a woman who learned style from by typing Hemingway's stuff. out. Yeah, retyping it over and over again. Yeah. Uh, actually, if you read Blue Nights, you can get some tragic and wonderful investigations into her early drafting process as she realizes right. that her brain is going and she can no longer right. write the way she. Although, wants of to. course, we should also question whether or not she ever did actually type out Ernest Hemingway stuff because she is our only source for that and was a. Like Ernest Hemingway himself, who in the first half of the 20th century was the great self-narrative, you know, liter who built liter literary celebrity out of just absolute hogwash. Yes, that's um, right. Right. Um, but then but then invested in his own myth so much that he gave himself a bunch of traumatic brain injuries and wound up committing suicide. <laughs> exactly. So we should have some questions about that. But yeah, it's worth paying attention to the idea of the paragraph throughout. Mm this because one of the things that we'll notice, you can notice this and say, Matt Taibbi's writing. I'm a Matt Taibbi fan. I don't always agree with him, but I think he's a thoughtful guy. If you take a look at his columns, especially what happens when they get turned into books and are no longer online, is how short the paragraphs are. Mm -hmm. And what that does to the thought process of politics that is happening there. Now, he's not the only one but I would just like to say it is worth thinking about politics in a paragraph form and what might be done with a unit of thought on the page as different interpretations are carried across and different lines of thought are explored within that body of thought. So, so 
It's interesting you say this. I, when she died, I went back into the National Review archives and read her early, her early essays for the magazine. You know, one thing that has to be said about Bill Buckley, if nothing else, is that the guy was a, had a hell of an eye for literary talent. Yes, um, that's the true. Number of people, <laughs> yeah, the number of people who pass through NR who it is not listed in there. It's, it's completely stripped out of Gideon. I, yeah. At least it was the last time I looked. There is, there is no mention of the fact she got her, her start working as a back office person at Vogue, but publishing mm-hmm. book reviews at National Review. Not something that could happen today. Yes. But, you know, she, uh, she writes in paragraphs. There, her first essay for the magazine is a book review of, and everybody should go read this. It is hilarious. I mean, it's, she's, it's, she writes this in her early 20s and is a remarkably well-developed essayist mm-hmm. at this point in her early 20s. It's a review of, of uh, Michener's book, Hawaii. Mm-hmm. And it is scathing. Yeah, I don't uh, think there are few people other than I think of uh, Lash's deflationary ability in terms of deconstructing someone's thought, where he so easily renders it into an absurdity over the course of a paragraph. Right. And then there is Didion's gift for brutal juxtaposition of ideas within a single thing, which is often how she lays something low. She is she is one of our best mean writers. Yes, um, <laughs> certainly was. Yeah. So and and she had that from the beginning. And what's what's interesting about the, so the review of Michener is is fascinating because Hawaii, which has zero cultural impact today, mm-hmm. right, was a phenomenon the like of which we have no analog to in American literary life now. So mm-hmm. the the movie deal is signed before the book. It is universally regarded in high society circles as a major achievement of American letters before the book has come out. Yes. Right? It's 800 pages long. The thing is mammoth, right? And it sucks. It's a bad book. Everybody pretty much kind of knows it's a bad book and no one wants to say it because to admit that it's a bad book means you have to say why it's a bad book. And if you say why it's a bad book, then you have to kind of acknowledge that the entire edifice holding up Michener and his career is bullshit. And what she does, it's very, very clever and very dangerous, is she goes in there and says, effectively what she says is Michener's a crappy writer. He just writes in stereotypes and caricatures. He doesn't actually develop characters. He just takes a handful of archetypes and drops them into like places, right? Like, so they're just, they're, they're, they're paper dolls with different clothes put on, or in her case, what she's saying about Hawaii is he's just putting different skin colors on them. Mm -hmm. He's not actually investigating all of them. And he's doing this because he knows that his audience will be titillated by the prospect of interracial romance between a Polynesian male protagonist who sounds exactly like a white male guy who is the star of every other Michener story and a white female sort of supporting character who is just like every female character that Michener has ever been. Mm-hmm. Right. But so what she's really doing, she's saying Bob Michener is a shitty writer, but he's a bad writer because he flatters the sort of easy titillation of his dumb readership and yeah. his dumb readership is so, com- you know, is, is both large self-regarding and commercially powerful that we take these exercises in asininity and turn them into major cultural moments and commercial products before they've even hit shelves. Yep. Which for a writer or an aspiring writer at this point, at the age of 23 or 25, whatever she was, which she published it to write took some balls. Yeah. Yeah. I, w- I will say whatever we can say about her close offness, 
I would say, not to overly psychoanalyze her or whatever, the way in which her social anxieties, I think, contribute to her burying of subtext and game of surface play, along with the creation of her persona as the writer and creator of interpretations and events within the media cycle. She was willing to lance some of the worst boils, the dumbest boils that had attached themselves to the American literary scene at the time. Well, and, and the broader cultural production, you know, system anyway. I, I would say like when I think of Didion, so it's interesting. She died and, you know, a bunch of people put out essays that had been written about her in the three or four years previously. You know, Caitlin Flanagan put out one that was great. It was, you know, it involved some personal reminiscence that was very funny and, and mm-hmm. you know, in some ways Didion-esque intentionally. And it was, it was about three years old, but it was nice. It was a good piece. And then this uh, public radio station put one out or public broadcasting station in Boston put one out that had this woman musing about who our Joan Didion of today was. And she was like, maybe it's Anna Navarro or, or Joy Reid. And I, I, lost, <laughs> I lost my shit because I think it's pretty clear. I can be quite critical of, of Didion as a writer and also of her writing, but I think she was a great American literateur. And I think those people are morons, right? Obviously Just subpar in comparison. Just like, obviously. But, but, but like stylistically, ten, they're tendentious dopes. They're tendentious yeah. dopes who have no thoughts. Like She's the type of nothing. people she would cite in this essay. Right. And then I also was thinking about this Gawker writer who sort of made fun of, of Didion and, oh, who was the other? The woman from Los Angeles who died. Eve Babbitts? Yes, yes, Eve Babbitts. You know, she sort of wrote this piece snarking on how white girls were sad that Eve Babbitts and Joe Didion had died. And I was just like, you do realize that both you, the Boston wine mom who thinks that Joy Reid is a literary figure mm-hmm. and the like, you know, post-structuralist college dropout, you know, gawker writer with a name I can't pronounce. You realize you're the same person and yeah. that Joan Didion hated both of you. Right? <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. And, and so anyway, I, I tweeted some mean things, uh, which happens sometimes. And Jerry Dunleavy at the Washington Examiner sent me a message. He was like, you know, though it is an interesting question. Like, who is our Didion today? Mm-hmm. And I, I had to conclude, like, we can't, not only do we not have one, but we can't have one because liberalism will not be mocked. Yeah, no, it can't. And, it, it won't stand for it. And not in the way that has the agonistic feature that you were talking about before. And what I mean by that is that there is no longer this sort of held tension of the debate. Instead, the way that social media has changed this is that there is only in-group, out-group policing. And that is how we've chosen or how we've ended up ventilating these issues. Yeah. Which if we want to get super sort of navel gazy about this, a confident establishment can tolerate internal critics. And mm-hmm. no one was better at, dom- at, at dominating the sort of ethos and habits of, of, of behavior of the American establishment more than Joe Didion. Mm-hmm. And so ultimately, were her piquant criticisms of the establishment not themselves just an exercise in fl- throwing a baseball on the tarmac? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the real question to ask here. And this is, I think, the sustained assault on the idea that culture war is going to get you very much in the long run. 
because it is also a media product that is a stalking horse for the material consensus as it actually exists. And which, which may break apart, but it could, Hey, shit happens. People, yeah. Shit happens. Right. But, as, people are not, <laughs> but you can't, you can't hide the football. You can't, you can't Lucy that like you have to, I mean, yes, people have to be, you know, when you start talking about people's pocketbooks, stuff gets intense and mm-hmm. we should be aware of that. But yeah, ultimately you're right. Like cultural criticism is um, all fine and good, but uh, you know, whoop, there goes yep. the football. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And so I am reminded at the close of this episode at the rotary phone in the home I spent my earliest years in, in Chicago, that on its little center button had a picture of Richard Nixon around which it said shit happens. And on that note, <laughs> we'll conclude the, the episode. Thanks for joining me, Luke. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. All right, everybody stay safe out there. We'll see you next week.